So yes, Lord, we come with that posture this morning, um, knowing that you're a good heavenly father, perfect in all of your ways, that you love us, care for us. God, given us your word, given us your son, given us your Holy Spirit that inhabits uh, the praises even of your people that are gathered here today. God, blessed beyond what we could have asked or imagined immeasurably more. So we're grateful for your goodness and your grace today. In the name of Christ, the people of God, together said, amen. Please be seated. Um, I'm not typically a, a very emotive person, but um, my, my wife is out of town, so I've been on, on solo dad duty for the last three or four days, which means minimal sleep. And you know when you're like really tired, your emotions come to the surface, you know what I mean? So like, you know, I, I tear up a little bit. I'm like, what is this salty discharge? What is this, you know? So for those of you who uh, are uncomfortable with, with a pastor showing emotion, welcome. Glad to have you. Um, hey, I'm Lucas, by the way. I do have emotions. They show up once every, I don't know, about as often as Haley's Comet shows up, actually. So um, but it's, good to, it's good to see you this morning. I'm the lead pastor here at Bayview Glen. Uh, for those of you who are new with us or maybe just... Uh, joined us last week for Resurrection Sunday and now uh, tracking with us through the series called Questions. Great to see you. So many new faces, so many familiar faces. Thanks to our ushers, actually, too, for helping people find seats. I don't know why people never want to sit in the front row. Poof, thanks, buddy. But everybody else wants to stay away from the, from the lead pastor, which is, which is fine. I'll get over that. Uh, we're going to be in Acts uh, chapter 2 this morning, so if you have your Bible, I would love it if you open it up. Uh, you can use the one in the seat back in front of you. You can use your device, and we'll come to the scripture text here in a minute. But remember where we were last week in John chapter 20, and we tracked through the resurrection of Jesus. And, and, and we began our series called Questions with this one very critical question, and the question is, uh, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we said that a lot of times when people try to understand Christianity, what they do is they look at Jesus' followers or, or they look at Jesus' teachings. But the real critical question is, who is he? Who was he? What's, what's his identity? And what we established last week was that he is uh, the Son of God, the Redeemer and Restorer, Sustainer of the universe, and now Lord of the universe, exalted to the right hand of the Father, uh, sent uh, as a perfect substitute and sacrifice for us now uh, raised from the dead. And that's, that's what the Bible claims. And so if we're going to deal with the claims of Christ, we, we've got to deal with, with that one. And, and so we established that last week. And now we're looking at a second question. Uh, and, 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 and the second question we're looking at this week is, what does it mean to, to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? And for some of you, this may sound like a really simple question at first glance. It might sound like it has a simple answer, but honestly, this question has been fodder for a lot of arguments in the church for the last 2,000 years. There's not a lot of even agreement when it comes to the answer to this question in modern uh, in Christendom. However, the Bible is very, very clear as to what it means to be a Christian. Because there was a moment in church history, and we'll get to it in Acts chapter 2, where this question really came to the surface in a very, very significant way. And the church was forced to answer this question. And it came on the heels of 
what I like to call an oh darn it moment. You ever have one of those moments where, you, where like the consequences of your actions or you've made a, a choice or a series of choices and it becomes painfully crystal clear that you've made a bad choice and the consequences just show up and you just say, oh darn it. Has that ever happened to you? Okay, I want to tell you about one that happened to me this week. Uh, when when uh, Kaya and I do our kind of daddy-daughter time, one of the things that we like to do is go to the mall because they have like a play place there. And what I typically do is feed her waffles in the morning so she gets syrup all over her hands. And then I take her into Lululemon and let her touch all the expensive stuff. And then, so if you ever buy something from Lulu and it's got syrup all over it, thank Kaya. So then we go to the play place and she plays around and then, and then we, we go home. So I'm coming home from Upper Canada Mall on Davis Drive uh, there on Friday morning, and, and the road I'm on is a two-lane road, and it begins to collapse down to one lane because of construction, and at the same time, a light goes red and, uh, up in front of me, so all these cars are stopped, and I'm right up against the car in front of me, and the car behind me is right up against me, and I'm just kind of waiting for the light to turn red so we can get moving again, and, and then I hear a, a bell ringing to my right. And I thought, wow, that's, that's odd. And so I look up, and in a, in a kind of a one instant, a one moment, I, I become aware of two very critical pieces of information. One, the bell that I hear is a train. Two, I'm stopped on the tracks. So I, I, um, I uh, can't go forward because there's a car in front of me. Then I look in my rearview mirror, and the guy behind me is texting. So I'm honking, you know, trying to back up. The guy behind me is texting. I'm going, oh, darn it. <laughs> That's actually my inner monologue, too. I don't even swear in my head. I'll say, oh, darn it. That's all I do, okay? So I, I honk, and this guy's not moving back. So finally, I just, like, you know, I move back far enough not to hit the guy, but enough to get off the tracks, right? And as the thing passes by, and they were, they were moving uh, like a, a piece of construction equipment, like one of those big yellow pieces of construction equipment, a digger. Do they have diggers? We just call it a digger. Okay, it's a digger, and it's moving behind me, and the guy kind of waves at me as he goes by. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is bad. And there's a kid at the bus stop that's laughing at me. Well, I moved back enough that I cleared the train tracks, but you know what I did not clear? is that safety gate that comes down. So, so I pulled out my phone and took this picture uh, when it happened. <laughs> the safety gate came down with a thud and hit the windshield of my car, and I hear this little voice in the back seat go, uh-oh. <laughs> and I thought to myself, oh, darn it. <laughs> okay, two things. Number one, if you tell Amy, I, you are not welcome here, okay? That's it. We have, a, we have a situation, okay, with confidentiality agreement. So just don't pass this information on to Amy. Two, the early church was absolutely littered with oh darn it moments. Did you know that? I mean, it happened all the time. Mm. People making bad choices and dealing with the consequences. And God turned those things for good. 
uh, in every case, as he tends to do, according to Romans 8. And we don't have time to cover all of those oh darn it moments in the early church, but one of them really is the catalyst for the jumping off point for our conversation this morning to answer this question, what does it mean to be a Christian? That moment comes at the end of Acts chapter 2, but we're going to start in Acts uh, chapter 2 verse 1, and we'll work our way up towards the end, and we'll kind of get a nickel and dime tour of the inception of the church here as we move through it. So Here's our context. Shortly after the resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven, actually 40 days after. Jesus ascended into heaven and left his disciples with very little detail regarding what's next. So you could picture the disciples gathered together. Jesus ascends into heaven, and they're just looking up into heaven going, wow, that was really cool. Now what? And someone smart, probably Matthew, because he was an accountant, speaks up and says, hey, hey, he told us to go to Jerusalem and wait. I know it's not a lot of detail, but that's what he told us to do, so that's what we're going to do, so off you go. And they go to Jerusalem, and they wait. And so that's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. The scripture reads this way. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. So just so we know, Pentecost is the 50th day after Passover. Jesus spent 40 days uh, appearing to witnesses and appearing to his disciples uh, after the ascension. So this is about 10, or after the resurrection. So this is about 10 days after the ascension of Christ. 10 days after he's ascended into heaven. So keep reading. When the day of Pentecost arrived, uh, the disciples were all together in one place there in Jerusalem. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, stop there. Did actual fire-shaped tongues enter this room that day? Perhaps. Perhaps. It's well within the realm of possibility that that, that happened. I, that's, that's not outside of God's box, right? He's got a real big box as to what's possible. Uh, what I think is more likely is that Luke is explaining to us a supernatural event using natural language. H how do you explain supernatural events and how do you how, give somebody a picture of something just really spiritual and, and supernatural, something you've never, extraordinary, things you've never even seen before. Well, you use natural language. It was like a wind. It was like tongues of fire. It was like something. And essentially what's happening is that the disciples are together and suddenly there's this thing, this moment, something supernatural happens. And each of the disciples was given the ability to speak a known language that they did not know the moment before. So it's as if something just kind of happens in this place and we all recognize it and all of a sudden I'm able to speak Russian or Arabic or Farsi or, or some language that I did not know before. So this is what's happening. Keep reading. It says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So just like Toronto, people from everywhere. And at this sound, the sound of the disciples speaking, the multitude of those people came together and they were bewildered. They were confused. They were perplexed because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 7. And they, that's the multitudes, were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? 
Aren't they all from Galilee? So how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed and saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Now this is funny. This is really funny to me because here's what's happening. Picture this. Each individual that's gathered of this big multitude of people is hearing their own language from the disciples, right? But there are a lot of other languages being spoken. And that individual that's listening to their own language doesn't speak all of those other languages, so it just sounds to them like childish gibberish. So this crowd says, well, that person is speaking my language, so I know they're cool, but the rest of you, you're drunk. Like, you guys are hammered. I think this is a very odd conclusion to come to. Peter thinks it's odd, too. Keep reading. Verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Now, I think this is even funnier. This is where, if you if pay attention to the scripture, there's funny stuff that happens. Peter is arguing for sobriety here based on the time of day. Like, it's only 9 a.m. Who's drunk before 9 a.m.? It's way too early to be drunk. But Peter goes on to explain that the prophet Joel wrote about this very day. He says that there's a day when God's spirit is going to descend on people. They're going to see visions. and They're going to dream dreams and miraculous supernatural stuff like the ability to speak a known language that you didn't speak five seconds ago is going to happen. We've known this for a long time. It's in the Old Testament. And so now that Peter has corrected some inaccurate assumptions, namely, we're not drunk, he gets to the heart of the matter in verse 22. Look at verse 22. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Remember, they're in Jerusalem. This is where Jesus just was crucified 50 days ago. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Skip to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Talk about the greatest oh darn it moment of all time. Can you imagine someone saying this to you? The Lord of the universe ascended to the right hand of the Father, the creator of all things, in control of all things. You, re you recognize that that's the guy you just killed 50 days ago. Everybody get that? Oh, darn it. <laughs> Now, this oh darn it moment leads the crowd to a great question in verse 37. This series is called Questions. I love this question. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. They panicked. And they said to Peter and the rest of the disciples or apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? Now, 
I suspect that this question is tinged with an element of fear as well. So not just what shall we do, but is there anything to do? I mean, we crucified God. Are our actions actually reparable at this point? What shall we do? Peter's response is great. Verse 38, it's our critical verse for this morning. Peter said to them, here's what you do. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna read that one more time. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of, the, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the first thing that I want you to see in verse 38 is the unrelenting, matchless, incomparable grace of God. Understand what's happening here. God, through Peter, is offering forgiveness to those who just crucified his kid. Like, some of you think, like, well, I've done some pretty bad stuff in my life. You ever nail God's son to a cross? Okay, cool. You're not as bad as these guys. And God is about to start his church with those folks. Now, that's pretty gracious. It's pretty cool. You know, you know what else is happening here? Who is he using to communicate that grace and communicate that truth? He's using Peter, who was like Jesus' best friend or one of three of his best friends when he was on the planet. And just 50 days ago, they're taking Jesus to the cross, and Peter swears. He uses curse words at a preteen girl that says, you sound like you're from Galilee, and I know he's from Galilee. You've got to know this guy. And he actually curses at the girl and says, I have never met the man. And this is who God is using to start his church. That's pretty gracious. You with me on that part? Okay, the second thing I want you to see here is that Peter, for the very first time, is articulating what it means to follow Jesus in a world without Jesus. I'm going to say that one more time. Peter is articulating for the very first time what it means to follow Jesus in a world without Jesus. Because, you see, when, when Jesus was walking around on the planet, being a Christ follower meant that you literally followed Christ. Jesus said, follow me, and they dropped their nets, and they left their tax booth or whatever, and they just followed him around. When he walked, they walked. When he stopped, they stopped. He ate, they ate. He lied down, they lied down. They just followed him. But when Jesus ascended into heaven, things changed. They couldn't literally follow him around anymore. You get me? You with me? Okay, even in, in look, look at this. In John 13, 36, just before Jesus goes to the cross, in that discourse uh, uh, in, um, in the upper room on uh, Thursday night uh, as they're having Passover, look what Jesus says to Peter. He says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. He literally says that to Peter. He says, in other words, you've been following me for three years, but I'm going to go somewhere, namely ascend into heaven, and you can't follow me there now. So things are going to change. Following me is going to look different once I ascend into heaven. But here's my question. How? How would it look different? What would following Jesus look 
mean once he ascended into heaven? Uh, to use our language this morning, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? Because understand that, that that's the world we're living in, right? That Jesus is no longer here with us physically. He's here with us by his spirit, but he's no longer here with us physically. If you see Jesus physically, please let me know, okay? But he's, he's not here, so if you see him physically, then, then we got other issues to deal with. And, and when he comes back the second time, it will be very, very clear, okay? So this is a world without Jesus. He's ascended into heaven, so we're living in the same situation that these guys were. So Peter's response to the crowd's question is the very first post-ascension, post-ascension of Jesus, expression of what it means to be a Christian. How do I follow Christ? It's right here in Acts 2.38. What is it that I must do? How is it that I am to be forgiven for my sins? Peter says two things. Did you catch it? Repent and be baptized. Did you catch it? Repent. What then shall we do? What, what must we do? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those two words, repent and be baptized, are pretty churchy words, aren't they? This is, we hear those words most often in church. Repent, be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Like my, my guess is that you're not driving around with your spouse and you make a left turn and you should have made a right turn and your spouse yells at you to repent. Okay, Maybe they do that. I don't know, but probably not. Or that word baptize, we don't typically think about, I am going to baptize this Oreo into milk. Uh, sometimes I do because that's a really sacred moment for me and I use the word baptize because I love Oreos so much. Have you, heard, have you seen the birthday cake Oreos? They taste like birthday cake. Have you seen those? They have them in the U.S. We have all the best food. Okay. It's, it's like... The, <laughs> Inner monologue, inner monologue. <laughs> stuff I'm not supposed to say, stuff I'm not supposed to say. Amy's not here, should I say it? No, I, I can't. All right. What I'm, what I'm telling you is that those two words, repent and be baptized, are, are, are churchy words. They're used in church most often. But when Peter used them 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost, they weren't churchy words. There was no church to be churchy in. They weren't even really religious words. And so what we're going to, they're just common language. He's using common language to explain to this crowd. And they're asking, what, what are we supposed to do then? What are we supposed to do? He uses really common language, repent and be baptized. And so what we're, what we're going to do is try to extract the meaning from those words and use really common language. We're going to do the Greek and all that stuff. But we're going to try to put some really common language around these two concepts of repentance and baptism. So first, let's take a look at that word repent, repent, repent. Uh, in, the, in the original language, that word is metanoeo. It's a Greek uh, contraction of two words, and those two words are mind and change. Mind and change. So the word repent is simply to change one's mind. So when they say, what then shall we do? The first thing Peter says is, well, first of all, you need to change your mind. Change your mind. Uh, we had a guy named Brother Jed, um, who used to walk around Arizona State University campus. He'd come about every uh, six weeks, and he'd stand out on the lawn, and he'd hold a sign, and he, it said, repent for your sins, or you're going to burn in hell, and he'd scream at us and all that stuff when I was at, at university. I, I didn't like Jed for two reasons. One is because he was a really horrible dresser. Uh, two, that Jed clearly did not understand the biblical concept of repentance. Here's why. 
Can you remember a time in your life where you changed your mind about something because someone yelled at you? Now, you may have changed your behavior. You, you may have done something different because someone screamed at you. But when people scream at us, like Brother Jed did, it, it, it doesn't really change our minds about anything other than the fact that, you know, I don't like that guy. I might have liked him before, but now that he's screaming at me, I don't like it now. So understand this, that God is not coercing or manipulating or screaming at us in anger to get us to repent. He's inviting us to a different state of mind. Lovingly, God wraps his arms around us. He uses reason and logic in the scripture, and he walks us through this concept, and he goes, we're talking about a mind change here. I'm not going to berate you. I'm not going to beat you over the head. I just want to invite you to a change of mind. And, and that new state of mind that he invites us to is a state of mind that acknowledges his sovereignty, his authority, his goodness and grace, that he's a good, good father, acknowledges his provision and mercy. This is the mind change that God invites us to. He's inviting us to see ourselves even from his point of view. And here's how we typically see ourselves. We think that if we were given carte blanche, like if we, were, if we could do anything we want, we could create a perfect world. And you might not think that of yourself, but let me prove it to you. You do the same thing I do. You think to yourself, if, if I could just make a little more money, or if I just was not married to that person, if I was married to this other person, or if I just didn't have to go to work, or if that person that's in the cube beside me wasn't in the cube beside me, or if the teacher was just nice to me, like just one little tweak, one little thing, one little circumstance, then the world would be great. It would be shalom all over again. It would be like the Garden of Eden. And God comes around and he goes, you know, you actually can't do that. You're, you're busted, you're, you're broken, you're fractured. But I can do that. In fact, I did do that. So I'm inviting you to a new state of mind that understands that my design is perfect. My picture that I've painted for my world is perfect. See it from my perspective. And, and when you do, when you change your mind, I'll restore every part of you that was fractured. But that restoration requires a change of mind. The second exhortation that, that Paul uh, uh, offers to the, to the crowd that asks, what then shall we do is to be baptized. Be baptized. The word baptize uh, in the Greek is baptizo. It's one of the easiest Greek words to remember. Just swap out the E for the O, baptizo. And when we think about baptism now, we typically think about the baptistry tank behind me, don't we? We think about people getting dunked under the water in a river, or, you know, where I'm from in Arizona, we used to do it in a pool because um, they actually weren't frozen all the time. It was great. Uh, so we would, and, and that's kind of what we picture, isn't it? That's kind of what we picture. But, but this is not uh, that picture that Peter is offering them. The word baptize or baptizo in the Greek simply means to dip or to immerse. So we could actually say, I'm going to baptize this Oreo into milk. We're just, we're just going to dip it. We're going to dip it. So here's the thing. Being baptized, like that symbol of going under the water and coming, that is a really good thing. That's a great thing. We should do that. It's a commandment. But do we really think that that's all Peter is talking about here? 
is he suggesting to the crowd that they've crucified the Son of God and all you've got to do is just be dunked underwater and come back up and all your sins are forgiven. Is that really what he's suggesting to them? I think he's probably talking about more than that, don't you? So Peter is exhorting the crowd, yes, to be dipped, to be immersed, but he's exhorting them to immerse themselves in the life teaching goodness and grace of Jesus. Be baptized, Peter says. Be immersed, be submerged, be overtaken, be overwhelmed in and by and through the name of Jesus. And in so doing, you get a new identity. Now now, now, we, now we're not talking about a change of mind. Now we're talking about a change of identity because I've been immersed in Jesus. Anybody remember Fun Dip? Do you remember Fun Dip? Some of you, some of you are having a religious experience right now. Yes, Lord, Fun Dip. Um, for those of you who don't know Fun Dip, Fun Dip, like on the eighth day, God created Fun Dip. It's, it's so good. What it is, is like a, a pouch like of candy. I wish I had Fun Dip. I should have got some Fun Dip. It's a pouch of, of candy. And, 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 and you open the first pouch, and there are two, like, candy sticks in there and they're like made entirely of sugar it's like sugar compounded compacted all together and they're about like the consistency of a nail file that's about what they're the consistency of and then you get like four other pouches of sugar it's fantastic and each of those other pouches of sugar is flavored differently so there's a watermelon one and a grape one and a cherry one and and it's just sugar and it's like you know red number five and yellow number five and all these you know eat fun dip you'll just slowly embalm yourself with all the preservatives in it it's crazy so here's the principle with fun dip you take one of those sugar sticks out that's about the consistency of a nail file you lick it and you dip it in a flavored sugar and then you and then you lick the sugar off it's the most wonderful concept in the history of the world i absolutely love fun dip and every time you dip that sugar stick in another packet of sugar it takes on a new identity you see where i'm going don't you it's watermelon this time or it's cherry this time it's not the original nail file that it used to be it's absolutely fantastic when you think about what Peter is inviting us to, what God is inviting us to through Peter, I really would love you to think of Fun Dip. It's not the original thing that it once was. It's been submerged. It's been immersed. It's been dipped. It takes on a whole new flavor. It takes on a whole new likeness. It doesn't look the same, smell the same, taste the same. That's what he's inviting us to here, to a whole new identity. And a lot of us think that Christianity is about new activity, don't we? We think it's about behaving differently. If you ask somebody on the street, it's like, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, well you do good things and, you know, try not to do bad things. Well, that's, that's activity. Peter says, no, that's not what it is. It's an invitation to a new identity. It's a call to be immersed in Christ, to take on his identity. So the invitation of Christ is not an invitation to a new activity, but a new identity. It's not about acting differently. It's about being different at your very core. So here's, here's Peter's answer to our question. What does it mean to be a Christian? The very first proclamation of the gospel in a world without Jesus is this. It's a call to a new mindset and a new identity. 
Change your mind, be made new. New mindset, new identity. New mindset, new identity. If you've never heard the gospel before, or maybe you've heard um, kind of odd, kind of strange versions of it, and you're not sure exactly what it, what it is or what, it, what it's inviting you to. Maybe you've heard people use the language, ask Jesus into your heart. Have you ever heard that one before? Ask Jesus into your heart. I, I'm not totally opposed to that language. I think we just need to be careful with it uh, for, for a couple reasons. One, it's not in the scripture, so that's, that's for starters. Uh, a lot of people pull Revelation 3 out and say that Jesus uh, stands at the door of your heart and knocks. Uh, Jesus does not stand at the door of your heart and knock. He stands at the door and knocks. It doesn't say of your heart, number one. Number two, that text was actually written to the church. It's actually written to believers. Jesus is inviting himself into the church. So when we use that language, you know, to ask Jesus into your heart, or I'm not sure we know totally what that means and, and, and really understand what Jesus is inviting us to. Now, if you're like me and you know, and, and you know, with Kaya, with with my with my little girl, you know, I could explain to her, Kaya, you know, in the Hebrew mindset, the heart is really the center of the will, and so yes, you can invite Jesus into your heart, and so if that's you, that's great, you can do that with your kids, but but when you uh, evangelize and when you share the gospel with your friends and family and coworkers, let's share it this way: new mindset, new identity, new mindset, new identity. Kaya, when she asked me, what does it mean, Dad, to be a Christian? Well, you ask Jesus into your heart. No, no. You change your mind about the things of God. Where you once rejected him, where you once ran from him, where you once rebelled against him, where you once told your mom about the train issue and I told you not to do that, you know, and rejected the things of God, let's change our mind. Let's change our mind and say, oh, yeah, he's a, he's a good God who sent his son on my behalf. Now I can trust him. Now I can follow him. Now I can do what he says because I know he's got my best interest at heart. And, and now I've got a new identity, and my identity is in Christ. His righteousness has been given to me. Imputed is the $2 theological term. It's been given to me. I've got a new identity. That feels very different than ask Jesus into your heart to me. And it's certainly not about following a moral code. But I will tell you this that a new identity and a change of mind will, will impact your activity. It will impact your behavior. If you understand that you're now different, that you've got a new identity in Christ, excuse me, and you've changed your mind about the things of God, it will cause you to behave differently. <clears throat> I'll give you an example. Uh, just a few hours before the, the train warning signal fell on my car, uh, Kaya and I were at the mall having a lot better time than we were when I was parked on the train track. And she's in the little play place at the mall. And she's running around. And, and we're, we're like an affectionate household. We, we hug and kiss a lot. And I always ask Kaya, I'm like, hey, babe, can you give, can you give daddy a kiss? And she says, okay, which means no thanks. Um, and she shakes her head, and sometimes I just steal them from her. You ever do that with your kids? Just grab them. Even if your kids are like 19, you know, you just kiss them. That's great. Do that. It's great. They love that, by the way. They act like they don't, but they do. And I'm going to do that as old as Kaya gets. So, so I'll steal kisses from her, and I hug on her and all that stuff. So when she goes to the mall, to the little play place, that is how she behaves. So anyone that is at her eye level is going to get kissed on the lips, like, and she is very aggressive with her love, very aggressive. Like, 
she's, there's a little, uh, a little uh, Korean kid. I was talking to his mom afterwards. I didn't, know I, was, I didn't know he was Korean. I had to apologize to her for what Kaya did. So she's running after this kid, and he doesn't want to kiss on the lips, um, which I don't understand, but whatever. He doesn't want to kiss on the lips. And so he's running away from her, and Kaya runs after him. is like grabbing him and literally tackles him to the ground, grabs his face, and kisses him as he's, like, weeping. <laughs> you know? So, again, I've got to apologize to his mom. I'm very, very sorry. She's very aggressive with her love. Did, did she behave that way because I told her this is how you behave? No. She behaves that way because that's her identity. That's who she is. That's what we live in our house. Same thing goes for you and me, is that when our identity is changed and our mind is changed, all of a sudden it's like, well, goodness just comes out of me and generosity just comes out of me and service just comes out of me and empathy and care for others and doing justice in the world, it just comes out of me because that's my identity now. That's who I am, as we just sang. New mindset, new identity. New mindset, new identity. Two implications for you, and then we'll be done. The first is this, and I already mentioned it, but, but I feel like it's worth mentioning again. When you share the gospel with people, when you tell them about Jesus, let's, let's, let's do this. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means a new mindset and new identity. It means a new mindset and new identity. You can use the words repent and be baptized if you want. Or you can just say it's, it's about having a new mindset and a new identity. Tell them about your new mindset. Tell them about your new identity. Especially when you're sharing the gospel with your children. Again, be careful with that phrase. Ask Jesus into your heart. Ask Jesus to come into your life. Invite Jesus into your life. Uh, as, those are great if you explain them, and it's awesome. Uh, for me, it's um, repent and belief. Repent and be baptized. New mindset, new identity. Uh, the second thing I would tell you is this, that there is a great deal of assurance that you are saved and that no one will snatch you out of the Father's hand in this teaching, in this doctrine, in this invitation of a new mindset and new identity. I, I just want to show you why, because in my study this week, I, I typically study uh, Monday through Friday, and then I, I write my messages on Saturday. So in my study of this passage this week and about uh, repent and be baptized, repent and be baptized, I came across an answer in the scripture that I, I or, or uh, a question that I never had an answer for up to this point, and I came across the answer this week, and, and, and it just, it became so crystal clear to me, and it reminded me of how secure my salvation is in Christ, and I hope it reminds you too how secure your salvation is in him. Uh, have you ever asked yourself, okay, like, if I've got to repent, like, how much do I have to repent? Like, how much does my mind really have to change? I, I still, like Paul, would say, what I want to do, I don't do. What I do, I don't want to do. And you still have places in your heart and in your mind that God is still working out, and he's still unfolding, and he's still conforming into his likeness. So my mind has changed, but has it really changed, and I'm kind of growing in that and all that stuff? Um, so here's the, here's the interesting part to me. This is where, this is where, my, this is where uh, something became really clear to me this week. Mm. You, you can't repent enough. <laughs> Can you believe that? 
like even our change of mind, even our, even our saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, even that, it's like we, we can't get to a point where, where we really impress God with our mind change. And so, and so, now listen, now listen, this, this, will, this will change you if you listen close. And so, Jesus repented on our behalf. Now, now listen close, listen, because some of you, you theologians, and you're like, oh my gosh, he didn't need to repent. Well, of course he didn't. Of course he didn't. He was perfect, wasn't he? Wasn't he? So he didn't need to repent. But watch this. In Matthew chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist is out baptizing people, and he's eating locusts, which are basically cockroaches with wings, and, and eating locusts and honey, and he's baptizing people with a baptism of repentance. Do you remember this from Matthew 3? Everybody remember this? Okay, some of you may not remember this, but he's baptizing people, baptism of repentance. People are coming out and saying, I repent, I repent, change of mind, I'm diff- I want to be different, I'm changing my mind about the things of God, and now I want to undergo this external symbol that represents what's going on in my heart. Now watch this, what happens in Matthew 3. Jesus shows up. He comes from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. This is a baptism of repentance. What? It's a baptism of repentance. John would have prevented him. Makes sense saying what? I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? What's John saying? What, what are you doing here? You don't need a baptism of repentance. You don't need to repent. Does everybody understand John's question? Everybody understand? Wait, okay, like, we're cousins, dude. I've known you since you were knee-high to a grasshopper. I know that you have never sinned, that you are the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world, which is what he just declared. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals on your feet to stoop down and untie. More of you and less of me. You are perfect, spotless. Why are you here? Now watch what Jesus says. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Jesus, when we are baptized with him, our identity shifts to such an extent, we are so morphed and so changed because we are totally submerged into him. Did he need to repent? Of course he didn't. Of course he didn't. Does he bring us with him in radically changing who we are and giving us a new identity? His own righteousness given to us. We talked about this last week. He who knew no sin became sin so that what? We would become the righteousness of God. So all of a sudden, even even my salvation is not about how awesome at repenting I am. I'm still just hidden away in Jesus. Now understand, some of you are gonna panic, you're gonna send me emails, DaveL at BayviewGlenn.org. Understand, understand that I'm not preaching that you don't need to repent to be saved, that you don't need a change of mind. What I'm preaching is this, all of who we are, all of our reconciliation unto God is totally hidden away in Jesus. Do you understand that? Everything we've got, we have nothing else. I'm reminded of the words of an old hymn that I love. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. 
That gives you a lot of assurance. When it's all about Jesus and he secured your salvation and mine. Now that is good news. And that's pretty cool. I've asked the band and the worship team to close with a song. It starts this way. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. As we sing in Christ alone, my cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love, through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. I remind you this morning that your salvation is secure and that we have had a mind change and an identity change. We're hidden away in Christ. As we do that, our ushers are gonna come forward and receive a crisis care offering, what we call a benevolent offering. It goes directly to crises that are going on in our community of faith and in our surrounding community that just supports people that are in a little bit of a difficult spot. And so I invite you to give generously uh, and to give out of a grateful and contented heart as an act of worship as we sing together. Before we do that, let's pray. Jesus, we're reminded today that we are hidden away in you, that we have a new identity because we have been baptized and dipped, immersed into your righteousness, that we've had a change of mind, and that you continue to effect that change of mind even now to make us more like you. Jesus, we look to you for all that we have and all that we are. Even our faith is a gift from you, according to Ephesians 2. And so, God, we trust you with everything. We fall upon your grace. We cannot stand on our own, just as we said, nothing in our hands we bring. We just cling to your cross for everything we need, for life and salvation. We sing to you now because you are the cornerstone on which we build our whole life and our salvation. In Christ's name, amen. Let's sing together.